for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, Nova Scotia hip-hop artist and producer Luke Boyd, better known as Classified, has been one of the most successful in Canadian hip-hop this century, counting several big hits, judo awards, and more to his name. He joins me to talk about his latest track called All Wrong. It takes a look back at just how much things have changed for him and all those around him in the nearly 30 years since he first got started. He is one of the world's most famous birders. In 2015, Noah Stryker set out on a quest to see how many of the estimated 10,000 bird species on the planet he could find in just one year. 41 countries later, and he'd had the biggest of so-called big years, spotting some 6,000 species, culminating in a very successful book about it. How do you top that? Well, you don't. Instead, he's now focused on one bird in particular, and he's with me to talk about being a bird nerd and his recent trips to Antarctica to see the chin-strapped penguin. Imagine someone stealing all your loyalty points. They aren't something we necessarily think about protecting like we would money, but thieves know they have value. So how do you protect yourself? We find out. But first, move over boomers. After a 65-year reign, they are no longer the biggest population cohort in this country, replaced as of July 1st, 2023, by millennials. So what's driving the change? Why are we seeing regional differences? And what will it mean more broadly for Canada now that there's a new generation at the top of the pile? There is a new title holder in the battle of the generations in this country. Millennials, born between 1981 and 1996, have now officially surpassed the baby boomers, born between 46 and 65. StatsCat announced today that after a 65-year reign, imagine that, 65 years, the boomers are no longer the largest generation in the Canadian population. Here's how this happened. Between July 1st, 2022 and July 1st, 2023, the millennial population increased by more than 450,000 people, exclusively due to the arrival of permanent and temporary immigrants. And that pushed them ahead of the boomers. And that's the first time that's happened in just about everyone's memory. It's a sea change in modern Canadian demographic history. Imagine the generation born in the years following the end of the Second World War made up the largest cohort all the way back in 1957. The baby boom wasn't even over yet, and they were already the biggest group, surpassing the silent generation. And at one point from the mid-60s to the early 70s, Boomers made up 40% of the Canadian population, 40% of the Canadian population. My mom was telling me today that she was born in 47, and she remembers having 61 students in her grade three class in Montreal in 1953. Their school was so crowded that for a while there, they had to do half days. Now, zoom ahead 24 years to when I started primary school. We had 21 kids in my grade three class. So sparse were we that we actually had two classrooms available to us by then now i'm part of generation x born between 66 and 80 so we've been passed over in all of this you can say demographic dominance skipped a generation but let's set this up with a bit of a rivalry between the boomers and the millennials always fodder for a little comic relief did i get the job absolutely not why not because you're a baby boomer and i'm a millennial ah well Melanie, I, I am overqualified for this job. I don't know where you got this. We don't do paper applications. I made it. I don't do the internet. Okay, that is the third time you have said that this interview, and it also says so on this homemade job application. <laughs> there you go, champ. I don't know what this is for. Well, don't you need a trophy anytime you... anything? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's on. How'd you get here? 
horse? Uh, I drove my car. I own it. After eight more payments. What? How'd you get here? I took an Uber. Do not know what that is. <laughs> I bet you're a vegan. Yeah, because I'm not a monster. <laughs> Boomers versus millennials. Well, millennials in Canada, at least now, are the biggest generation. Doug Norris is senior vice president and chief demographer at Envir Environics Analytics, and he joins me now. Doug, thanks for your time. Good to be with you, Ben. This isn't necessarily a big surprise, but for any of us who've spent decades sort of talking about the boomers and their influence and watching those population pyramids we used to see in high school where they would show sort of what a real one would look like and what Canada's look like with that big bulge in the middle, that's a big changing of the guard, isn't it? It certainly is. Uh I mean, we've known this has been coming for quite some time. The, the large boomer cohort is getting older and mortality is starting to take its toll. And so their numbers are being reduced. And at the other end, the young millennials uh, now in their 20s and 30s um, really got a big boost over the last few years because of immigration. About half of all the immigrants coming into the country are essentially more millennials. And so their numbers really uh, got a big boost and they've now surpassed the boomers. Yeah, I, and that was interesting to me that, in fact, because when one thinks about it, you always sort of think of, of that big, you know, the fact I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, millennials were always a bigger group than we were. But as you mentioned, certainly immigration's really been driving this changing, uh, this changing of the demographic guard. For sure. No, for sure. And even the younger generations, my guess is with immigration continuing to be high, they'll even surpass the millennials at some point in the future. Right, Gen Z's on its way. Right, the millennials, millennials might not be in uh, might not be in pole position for very long. That's right. There are some interesting differences, though, regionally uh, with how this is playing out, because you know Quebec and Atlantic Canada is still a bit older. Uh, the West and the North, obviously, younger. That's right, and so in fact, although overall uh, in Canada as a whole, uh, there are slightly more millennials than boomers today. That's not the case. Quebec in in the Atlantic area. Uh, it is the case in Ontario and the Western provinces, um, and they're younger. So uh, being younger, they have more millennials. And as a result, uh, they haven't tipped the balance yet, although they will in the next few years. Yeah. Tell me a bit about how that works. Is that just a question of migration? Is that is that I mean, clearly the birth rates are different in the north. So we're seeing we have more kids. But are you seeing is migration the big factor here when it comes to the age of, of Quebec and Atlantic Canada, specifically Atlantic Canada, I suppose, still attracting uh, going out west for jobs and so on at a younger age? And therefore, the populations are a bit different. Yeah, for sure. Migration is important. Fertility plays a role as well, but probably not as an important role as migration. I mean, what's happened in, in the past is many young people left the Atlantic region to go out to the oil patch looking for a job. And as a result, what we see today is a much older Atlantic region and a much younger Alberta. Uh, Alberta by far today is the youngest uh, youngest province, and it has a probably a fair ways to go before the, uh, uh, in terms of the gap between the millennials and boomers. It's, a, it's pretty large in Alberta today. When one looks at the impact, though, that that boomer generation has had, it's hard to underplay. I and mean, it's not just in Canada, obviously, but it's hard to underplay what a dominant position that one generation has had in so much of what Canada is in 2024. That's right. I mean, it, it's very large. And what's interesting is is not only the actual numbers, you know, where now the millennials are slightly higher, but back in, in probably the early 1970s, the boomers represented 40% of Canada's population. So they were really a dominant generation. 
Today, although there are more millennials, millennials represent only about a quarter of Canada's population. So in terms of the impact, that boomer generation uh, certainly had a major impact. And another reason for the major impact was that they were pushing ahead of a very small, much smaller generation. And so at every life stage, you enter the school system, the labor force, and now their senior years, they're replacing much smaller groups of people and have a much bigger effect on all kinds of organizations. Right. It's interesting to note that although millennials are now the biggest proportion of, of Canadians, that they that their population cohort won't have the impact, that in fact the boomers still remain unique in that demographic sense. I think so. Yeah, I, I think the, the history of the boomers um, is is different, basically, in, in many ways, because of the uh, the relative size of the boomers compared to the rest of the population. And, and the millennials probably won't go much higher than about a quarter of our population. When one looks at, uh, I'm a Gen Xer, of course, born in 1970. My parents were boomers. I suspect most millennials, especially older millennials in their early 40s now, had boomer parents as well. Gen X, though, Gen X is never going to be, I guess that's it for for us. We're never going to be the dominant population in this country. Well, not numbers, but uh, as the boomers age, uh, Gen X is going to be an important, uh, play an important role as as they move through their older years. So, uh, while numerically perhaps not as large, we have to be a little bit careful too when we compare the size of the generations because the way they're defined is actually different. Like there are a different number of years in Gen Xers compared to boomers, compared to millennials. So it's a little bit of a apples and orange comparison, but we just often talk just about the generations and forget about how they're actually defined. But for sure, um, Gen X has has been caught between the millennials and the boomers, and we hear a lot about both of those, and relatively little, unfortunately, about Gen X. But they are important. I have two Gen X daughters. <laughs> yes, indeed. I I I think of it as the Steelers' wheel song. You know, stuck in the middle, stuck in the middle. Jokers to the left of us, jokers to the right. No offense to the other generations who've yeah. who've been great. Uh, I mean, when one looked at when I remember studying demographics back at you know college and so on and there was always this talk of, of the boomers being a real and, and we're seeing the population you know the population aging to some extent although i think it got a little bit younger in these numbers but we still have some of those same concerns uh, although it seems like at least we have a slightly more balanced uh, demographic picture now when it comes to the young supporting the old which of course is how our entire system is built in many ways well although uh mathematically the the sort of average or median age of the population did tick down a notch because of those uh, young immigrants coming in. Uh, the reality is our population is going to be much older over the next decade or so. We're getting to a point where we're going to have 25% of our population over the age of 65. And what's even more important from a public policy point of view, from a service point of view, is a large part of that population are going to be people in their 80s and 90s that really will have a very dramatic effect on our healthcare system and, and many other institutions. Right. So not only were boomers such a huge cohort, they are living longer, right, in their old age. That's right. They're they're also living longer. And, and so uh, they're living to much older ages. I think 
Today, the fastest growing age group are probably centenarians over the age of 100. Doug Norris is Senior Vice President and Chief Demographer at Environics Analytics. We're talking demographics today. Uh, StatsCan reports that as of July 1st, 2023, millennials born between 1981 and 1996 now make up the biggest cohort in this country, surpassing the boomers, the baby boomers, for the very first time. Uh, they've been the dominant generation uh, forever, forever now. I think since 1958, they became the dominant generation before the baby boomers was even really technically over. Um, Doug, when you look at what this means, I mean, I know that at 23%, millennials, although now the biggest, aren't a, aren't a dominant um, age group. And yet their concerns as they head towards 50, for instance, they do find themselves in a different situation than the boomers were, or even Gen X has been uh, in terms of just debt loads and, and priorities and things about their concerns, what one thinks will begin become more and more important in the landscape, both politically and societally. Well, for sure, the millennials have had uh, a tough time uh, getting established. Uh, they, um, they're they well-educated. It's a well-educated uh, group. And um, they are uh, in now, most of them in the labor force, working, employed. Um, but they have a hard time keeping up. The prices of housing, for example, we've seen uh, the home ownership rates for millennials much lower than they were for Gen X and for the boomers. Uh, and um, that doesn't seem to to be looking to turn around anytime soon. So for sure, uh, the millennials, particularly the younger millennials, um, have a tough time today, even though they are more numerous. I know you do a lot of consulting on, on stuff like this, on demographics and demographic change. What do you tell organizations when they ask you what kind of impact this could have, that you have this quite large cohort of, of Canadians, 23%, that now find themselves, maybe not universally, but do find themselves carrying bigger debt loads and so on, because clearly their concerns will be a little bit different from the from the generations above them. For sure. And you know, from the point of view of consumer behavior, that generation is somewhat different. They are more worried about debt, uh, more worried about incomes, um, housing, again, a major, major factor. Um, one of the other things that is interesting down the road, however, is the millennials will likely in the future be the benefit uh, from the boomers of a lot of the inheritance that will be passed down. Even today, the millennials uh, are benefiting many of them from help from the, from their boomer parents. Uh, to get that first mortgage or to qualify for that first mortgage. And financially, although there are tough times today, um, for many of them, not all of them by any means, um, there will be a, a substantial transfer of wealth from that boomer generation down. Gen X will benefit uh, perhaps in the short run, and then the millennials will as well. And and presumably because uh, Gen Z is also quite large, that uh, millennials themselves, as they head towards retirement, will find themselves uh, I mean, we can't, we don't have a crystal ball here, but we'll find themselves in a somewhat more normal population structure than the boomers have found themselves in now. Yeah, for sure. That's one of the things that that I always uh, point out to people is that, you know, as you mentioned in your opening comments, we are familiar looking at that population pyramid that used to have that big wide base of boomers at the bottom. Now that's changed. And what's ahead uh, is really a uh, a rectangle in terms of our age population. We won't have that big bulge anymore because the size of the various generations pretty much are the same after you get by the boomers. 
Yeah, it, it's it's. I mean, I think we'll be looking back on that on that group of boomers, despite the fact that they've lost their title as of July of 2023. We'll be looking back at the impact that that generation had on Canada for a very long time, just because, as you pointed out, they were so dominant, and um, and in fact, their dominance still ripples through, even though they're no longer in first place. Oh, for sure. I think they're they're uh, they're not um, going away anytime soon. We're going to hear. I think a lot more from the boomers in terms of uh, long-term care and the facilities needed and the workers needed to care for that population. Um, so there's much more ahead. Doug, thank you. Thanks a lot. It's been great being with you. And I have with me a fellow that's certainly going to be given serious consideration for the cons my trophy, Tim Horton. Tim, you had two wonderful series. Oh, they turned out uh, beautiful anyway, Lloyd. Well, you've been on a lot of cups and you played a lot of hockey. Tim, uh, are you detached from it all or do you get emotionally involved? Oh, it's pretty hard not to get uh, emotionally involved uh, when you're in the Stanley Cup like this. This is, I think, uh, the ultimate when you're a hockey player. This is uh, what you look for. That was Hall of Fame defenseman Tim Horton speaking to Hockey Night in Canada as the Leafs uh, stunned the favoured Canadians to win their last cup back in 1967. A fourth for number seven, uh, Tim Horton, Miles Gilbert Horton, Tim. Uh, Dave Keon won the Colin Smythe, by the way, that year. Well, today marks 50 years since the death of the hockey legend, whose name grew to be something woven far more tightly into the fabric of this country than perhaps he could have ever have imagined. It was on February 21st, 1974, that a then 44-year-old Horton was playing with the Sabres. He was killed when he lost control of his sports car on the QEW near St. Catharines, Ontario, while traveling back to Buffalo after a game earlier that night in his longtime hockey home of Maple Leaf Gardens. He had already become a successful businessman at that point and had announced his retirement several times. Obviously, at 44, he was still playing. Uh, having launched Tim Horton Donuts in 1964 in Hamilton 10 years earlier, he had then teamed up with Ron Joyce a bit later, who would build a fast food empire. By 73, there were already 30 stores bearing his name in operation. So Horton was a married father of four, and it looked like Life was pretty much set for him off the ice, but he kept being lured back for one more season, including in 73-74, his 24th, when Sabres GM and longtime Leafs GM Punch Imlock enticed him to play one more season. And part of the way he enticed him was through the promise of a sports car, and I'll get to that. But he had a huge impact, Tim Horton did, on that young franchise, and those who were with the organization then will never forget this day 50 years ago. His teammates, including Mike Robitaille, Craig Ramsey, and former Sabres PR director Paul Whelan, remember that terrible phone call, or he remembers that terrible phone call in the middle of the night 50 years ago. So I get a call about 3 in the morning from the uh, provincial police, woke me up, and uh, this guy's telling me that I have terrible news for you. I'm afraid to tell you that Tim Horton was killed in an accident tonight. So I had to call Imlac and Joe Crozier, who was the coach that year, and uh, let him know, and that was really sad. Right at the Lake Street exit. I never drive by it without thinking of it. Never. And I drive by it a lot. It's a phone call you never forget, and something that was truly disheartening for all of us. The guys all wore black armbands the next game. And that really hit me hard. But we got through it and it toughened us up a little bit in different ways. The next year, we came bouncing back, and a lot of us still remembered and appreciated what Timmy brought to our team, and we tried to carry that forward. He was everything. Classy, calm, assuring, beautiful man. Memories of Tim Horton from 
people who were with the Buffalo Sabres when he was killed. Now, part of the legend that surrounds Horton returning for that final season in Buffalo was the promise of a new sports car, in this case, a $17,000 DiTomaso Ford Pantera, which was a big amount of money for a very ritzy sports car back in the day. Now, when the car was examined by a forensic engineer after the crash, he found there was nothing wrong with it. The problem had been excessive speed, intoxication, and that Tim Horton wasn't wearing a seatbelt. According to my next guest's reporting, it said that Punch Imlock had expressed a belief that he should never have given Horton that car. And while the legend of Horton and as a husband and a father, the hockey player, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 77, and the entrepreneur, you know, there are some 3,600 Tim Hortons in Canada right now and 5,500 worldwide as well known. I mean, the name is something that everyone knows. What happened to that vehicle has not been known until now. And as we pay tribute to Horton's remarkable career tonight and in, in every which way, freelance writer Ed Brown is an author. You can find his work at edbrownwriter.com. He's written a great piece for the Toronto Star called 50 Years After Tim Horton's Deadly Car Crash, We Clear Up One Lingering Mystery. And he joins me now to explain what that mystery was. Uh, Ed, thank you for your time tonight. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your interest. 50 years. I mean, I, I was young when it happened, but I think because of the donut shop, every kid asks at some point, who is Tim Horton? And no doubt a parent can can fill you in on what exactly happened. But you went in to tell a story of 50 years later. What was that story you were hoping to tell? I I, I found um, I recently, I, I've noticed in Tim Horton outlets, they've been celebrating their 60th anniversary. And I was wondering when um, Tim Hortons had passed away and, and what had uh, the story behind that. I, I was aware of his background as a hockey player and I knew about the car accident. I was a youngster when that happened and I remember hearing my brothers talking about it, but I really didn't have a context. And one thing that I was really interested in, I, I, I have a um, an interest in cars, but it was it was that car. I remember people talking about the uniqueness of that car. And I began to look um, in, in, into the existence of that car, but I was particularly interested in finding a photograph or something, a likeness or an image of Tim Horton with the car before the accident. And as I did a bit more research, I found lots of photos with uh, Tim Horton beside many of his cars, because uh, as you may know, he was a car buff, mm -hmm. but I could not find a single photo of him with that car and that began the process of finding out well what happened to the car and um that led me sort of down a rabbit hole of of where the car could be now it's interesting because horton's love of cars was well documented his his need to have a side gig was well documented too not only did he sell cars at one point but the whole origins of what we now know as his legacy the tim hortons donut chain um was also a, a side gig to him he was always sort of had things going it's not like today he couldn't live just off hockey alone right so that that that's so uh so struck me his his fear of going back to the place the poverty he knew as a child that was what drove him because b besides the the donuts, he sold cars. He had a hamburger stand, a, a, a profitable one, so somewhat. But he was driven to not um, return to that that place he knew as a child. And it, it's almost, you know, I, I know I'm exaggerating, but it's, it's like a Greek tragedy because he finally was on the precipice of getting what he wanted, and and then then this, then he died. 
And and you you build that into the story in a way that's interesting because he's then he's now played for the Leafs. Of course, he's won his four Stanley Cups. Uh, he's gone to play for the Penguins for a bit, and then Punch Imlock is now the coach in Buffalo. Uh, lures him out of yet another announced retirement to play in Buffalo, and then he announces his retirement again. And then Imlock uses the car, that car, um, the Di Tommaso Pantera, to bring him back for one more season, and that ultimately would prove to be the season he dies. And. In, in researching, I've had people, I've read a version of the story where it was actually Tim Horton who pleaded for the car. Okay. But um, I, I, I wonder if in a way, uh, be, the story is has been told so many times, it, it's, the, the, the edges of it have become dulled. So I wonder if in the past, in fact, I do know that Imlac gave a Porsche to um, Tim Horton, I think the year before. And that, that was the signing bonus then. And if 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 he had have got the signing bonus and drove the Pantera and, and everything went well, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But he was he was this Tim Hortons was burning through cars um, somewhat or very recklessly. And that night. He's uh, just to set the context, because I think people remember that evening uh, 50 years ago today uh, that he would be played as what would have been his final game at Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, it was believed and he was he didn't join the team to drive back to Buffalo. He instead, went to Hamilton to talk business with his business partner at the time. I guess it was was it Ron Joyce, yeah. uh, who, who went on to, be, you know, sort of built that empire. And then he leaves and then the crash happens. Right. And it's quite a I mean, it's it's. It is a moment that many hockey fans will remember distinctly because he was so well known and it was such a devastating crash. Boy, you know, Ben, I never realized how much of a, a flashbulb memory this is for some people. And they remember this as much as uh, in for myself, the Challenger disaster or or Elvis Presley's death. This this is such a huge event. But getting back to the night of the accident or the, the night before the accident, he was one of the privileges of being a veteran on 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 the team was he was allowed to drive back in his car so while the other while his other buffalo teammates were on the bus he hopped in his car and it's interesting as i was reading about that evening it was almost like he was milling around uh because after the game he he left the game early because of his jaw injury and then he went out to um a, a, a while to, to George's Spaghetti House, a local a jazz club at the time. And um, then he headed up Church Street and Davy Keon said he saw him walking up church and they had a, a few words. And so it was not in my mind, the story was he just finished the game, got in the car, drove away. But it was it was like any other game, any other game night for him, except it, it proved um, uh, faithful. And then the mystery is uh, because I think there was there was a lot of I mean, clearly there was a ton of interest in what happened and, and a lot of uh, grief, obviously. But what had happened to the car that night becomes something of a people are, are gathering pieces of it, I gather, on the side of the QEW where this happens between between Hamilton and Buffalo. And and, and the car then becomes sort of shrouded somehow, somehow in mystery. It's taken away and and people don't really want to talk much about where it is or what's happened to it. Yeah, I, I think um, that was intentional. It was interesting after the accident and the police investigation, they said, the authorities said um, 
that it was it was speeding like alcohol didn't play actually they didn't say that alcohol didn't play a factor they just didn't say that uh, what caused the accident and then all the, the uh, accident report everything was filed away and they didn't even do an inquest which was unusual but it wasn't until 2005 when uh, Glenn McGregor from mm -hmm. the Ottawa Citizen he made that freedom of information request and got those uh, that report, and that's what I used to follow what happened to the car after the accident because it's it's stated in there up to a certain point. Ed Brown is a freelance journalist and author. You can find his work at edbrownwriter.com. He's written a piece for the Toronto Star, or marking 50 years since the death of Tim Horton. It was 50 years ago uh, today, actually, that he was killed in a single car crash in his Di Tommaso Ford Pantera, a very expensive and quite unique Italian sports car that he'd been driving home late one night uh, between Hamilton and, uh, and Buffalo on his way home, actually, from a game at Maple Leaf Gardens that he'd left early because he'd been injured. Um, and a lot of mystery surrounded that night. I mean, there was an, uh, you know, a report later from the corner, I believe, that uh, Ed, that found that, of course, that there were factors that led to the tragedy, right? That he was that the car was traveling too fast, that he was under the influence of one of one or more things, that he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. But the car itself kind of vanished. And you managed, as you mentioned, uh, with the help of a uh, Freedom of Information request that Glenn McGregor, who we've had on the show in the past, uh, made many years ago to try to start trying to figure out where that car wound up. And you ended up in the Maritimes. Yeah, so the whenever I'm looking for anything, I, I you start simple. So I just did some VIN number searches because I thought if the car's out there, uh, the VIN number wouldn't change, but those came up um, empty. And it that just started off a process of going online and looking, you know, there were some obscure blog postings and people mentioning this, but there was one in particular by... Um, a, a gentleman, a writer, a former contributor, uh, Patrick Smith, he wrote for the Star the Wheel section. And at the bottom of a blog he has called uh, PH Collector Car World, someone commented about knowing the whereabouts of this car and that it it may still exist in the Maritime. So I uh, began a process of contacting as many sort of hot rod car enthusiast clubs that I could I, obviously I knew the car or the engine at least would be in a Ford um, be, because the, the, the two are compatible but um, after I did uh, I had no success with um, with those sort of hot rod car enthusiast clubs I thought about stock cars and racetracks and that took me down another rabbit hole and that and eventually that was that, that was the key I I spoke with a gentleman named Patrick Lawrence, who has a, a website called Heart of a Champion, and it's about East Coast race car drivers. And, and sure enough, it was just a matter of time before he led me to the person whose father uh, originally took the car from Ontario out to the Maritimes. And they, I, think, I think it was up for sale. I think you, you mentioned for $500 and it was purchased by... Uh... Well, it, basically, it, it, you you ended up, ended up as you mentioned in quite a well known stock car in uh, in the Maritimes. It, so the insurance company wrote it off, and they valued it at five hundred dollars. Right. And when where you know a year before it was worth seventeen thousand dollars. So basically, the car was worthless. And that um, detail about how it got from Ontario to uh, the Maritimes had intrigued me. But once it got out there. From as far as what the the son of Don Alexander, who bought the car, he he put it in um, 
a, a Mach one Mustang. Um, Kirk Alexander is is a is is younger, so he doesn't know remember the details. And unfortunately, his father's passed. But um, the car that it went into, the Mach one, was also from Ontario, and it went out to the Maritimes at the same time. So it was kind of like a perfect marriage. There was an engine looking for a car, and that's how the, the they they um, connected, and then it became a legendary uh, stock car driven by a gentleman named Jim Heller, Hellahan, which is pretty cool. Yeah, the, the, the fact that that part of it moved, lived on, and I guess part of what you were looking for was to see if any of it was still around, right? If any of this vehicle survived and it still exists somewhere 50 years later. I guess you didn't get a concrete answer, but you certainly didn't get a no. Well, it's interesting because the, the people, the family, and the individuals who bought the engine and they bought the car, they just raced it. It was like, it became like any other car, engine and it, it wasn't it didn't really have it was just something from the past but it didn't really it, it was uh it wasn't as um significant initially because when i when i connected with kirk alexander he, he was very matter of fact about it like he said um we yeah my dad got the car and uh my brother still may have the block but i think he might have the engine and he knew he had the dipstick <laughs> so it was it was interesting to follow that process, and um, and these, you know, quite frankly, these stock cars go through engines like butter, right? So it, it would be it wouldn't be a surprise that the, the engine would be replaced. But it's just the fact that it was in that car that we have a photograph of, and it it was a successful race car. Going back to Tim Horton's passion, I, I thought that was. Um, it, it was a nice uh, uh, circular story. Yeah. What did you walk away with? That, well, that's that's what I was going to ask you about, about d diving into this, because we're about the same age. So, I mean, Tim Horton, to me, was a face, someone that I knew that he had played. I knew how he died, obviously, growing up. And then we all know we all know the chain that, great, that his name still graces, and therefore he sort of lives on in, with a much bigger place in Canadian, uh, in the Canadian imagination than, than most hockey players of his quality or caliber would even given the tragedy. But you mentioned it earlier, it was almost, it is a tragedy in some ways, this, this fast car that he so coveted and wound up being what, what he died in. And, uh, but what did you walk away with when you, when you were all said and done? What I, what really dawned on me and it, 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 it I realized it when I, I was just looking for that original photograph of the car not in a wrecked state, I thought, oh, I could reach out to the family. He has four daughters. And as I was doing that, I was thinking, wow, the, this this anniversary for the Horton family is, is a tragic reminder of what they lost. But mm -hmm. for us, we see Tim Hortons and we go to Tim Hortons regularly. And it, it, it's not even so much uh, the name associated with that event. But I, I, it really dawned on me how much um the the canadian psyche has uh, uh, taken over that story and that man's life and he never got to appreciate uh everything that he worked for um he just he, you know he just made it to the um he just sort of made it to the edge of the promised land but didn't get to go inside so that's unfortunate yeah his legend looms large doesn't it ed thank you so much it was a great story i appreciate your, your, all your hard work on it well, thank you ben thank you for your interest <laughs> One of the things that's funny about loyalty points is we collect a ton of them and we don't spend a lot of them. So they end up sitting there and that is very inviting.
to thieves, of course. Um, about 85% of us apparently collect loyalty points of some kind, according to research in the U.S., saving them up and cashing them in sometimes, often. Sometimes people do it all the time. As a matter of course, when they're buying things, sometimes you save up for something special. And again, we tend to accumulate a lot of them worldwide. Uh, worldwide, one estimate puts that number in the tens of trillions of dollars in value, all these points sitting out there waiting to be reclaimed. Now, I'm not sure how diligently you monitor those accounts or how much you protect them with sophisticated passwords or two-step identification, but they do have obvious value, not just to the person who's collecting them, but also to those who would steal them. I saw one stat from the Loyalty Security Association, which estimates that on an annual basis in the U.S. alone, $3.1 billion in U.S. loyalty program redemption, redemption transactions are believed to be fraudulent. Now, not all of those are theft or external fraud. Some of those are internal fraud or using loopholes, but it gives you an idea of just how big it actually is. Uh, it is obviously an issue we should be aware of, especially as more and more people have their online account credentials leaked thanks to data breaches and so on, and as more and more of us have all that information stored on our phones, right? Kevin Lee is Vice President of Trust and Safety at fraud management firm SIFT in San Francisco, and he joins me now. Kevin, thanks for your time tonight. Good to be here. I mean, this is not, if you look this up, this is an issue that dates back a while, but how much of a problem is it still in 2024? Sure. So when I think about just how much account takeover and loyalty points have been so pertinent, when I think about the landscape of how much people have started to move more and more their identities online, unfortunately, when it comes to different loyalty scams, um, it's becoming even more popular over the years. How does it work? Because I think people, first of all, I mean, part of the problem, as you've pointed out in other interviews, is that we don't really see loyalty points as cash or as having the same kind of value as we might money. And yet they very much are to those looking to steal them. Absolutely. And I'm actually reminded by an old quote by a, a TV executive and named Don Olmeyer. And he used to say that the answer to all your questions is money. And now when I think about loyalty points, Although may, some people may not think of it as money, it is in fact a form of currency. And I know Bitcoin is certainly having uh, another run at it uh, lately, but in terms of digital currency, I'd say loyalty points. So if you think about restaurants, hotels, airfare, those are actually the original digital currencies out there and they continue to be a large source of revenue and joy, let's say for consumers like us, but also revenue for fraudsters and criminals out there as well. How does it work? Uh, I think people are oftentimes confused by how one would have their loyalty points stolen and used. Yeah, great question. And so really there's two ways that this can happen. Uh, number one is when it comes to online password hygiene, I'd say not every consumer out there is as diligent as you or I may be. And actually Google Chrome ran, ran a study that showed roughly 65% or so of consumers out there reuse the same password over and over again at different sites. And so unfortunately, what that means is that if one particular site were to have, let's say, a data breach and the information on their consumers were happened to be exposed online, well, that password, that email address, et cetera, yes, it would continue to work at that particular website. But if that consumer happens to reuse that same password over and over again, well, that means that fraudster or criminal now has the keys to the kingdom. And so it's not just to that one particular site, it's to all the various sites that that consumer happens to use that same credential and login uh, to get access to. 
I suspect too that unfortunately, and I and I, I wouldn't call myself an exception. I might be an exception now because <laughs> I've changed them, but but a lot of us don't actually treat our loyalty programs. Maybe maybe the air miles ones because they're often affiliated with credit cards and so on. But sort of just those standard store loyalty points and so on. We might not treat our passwords for those particular sites with the same sort of diligence that we would for banking and credit and so on. Definitely, and really, what that comes down to is, as a consumer. You may check your credit card statement checking account once a month, every few weeks or so. Uh, but when it comes to your loyalty points, let's say it's stored in a particular airline, well, people may not be checking that once a month. They typically check it a few times a year. Now we're getting into the summer travel season. And so as people are looking to book their airfare for the summertime, maybe that's when they finally log in to check out their how many miles they have. And maybe they want to cash some of those points in for their dream vacation. And so as a fraudster or as a criminal out there, it makes it much easier to fly under the radar, if you will, where if I, as the, the fraudster or the criminal, were to compromise your loyalty point account for a particular airline, and I do it now, well, you may not actually look into that account for several months. And by that point, I've already taken those points away, siphoned them off, redeemed them for my own flights or for other points or redeem them elsewhere. And you're left with essentially no more miles and you have to essentially raise a complaint with your airline. Do you have any insight on how this is done? Do they are they do they drain the account or do they do it in a way that you might even notice? Because honestly, half the time I don't even know how many loyalty points I have in certain loyalty areas, right? I if I had forty-four thousand and then woke up tomorrow with thirty-seven, I actually might not notice. Correct. And that's actually what they're banking on where there's sometimes could be a slow siphon. So if you have 44,000 miles in your account one week, next week, you might have 37,000. You're probably not going to notice it unless you're very, very diligent about the account. And on the flip side, you can have a more extreme version. And this is unfortunately what happens most often is once a criminal has access to your account, they're going to swipe the whole thing or as much as they can um, within a short period of time. And unless you have some sort of notifications turned on or you check your account more frequently, you're not going to know that you went from 44,000 down to zero. Is it easy to redeem them? Because when you talk about buying airplane tickets or you know paying for using points to pay for something at a restaurant, for instance, one would think that there might be some kind of paper trail there. But I gather that it's just not the kind of criminality that is often paid much attention to because it's just one of those buyer beware things to some extent. Correct. There is a bit, there, there definitely is a buyer beware status where if, let's say, going back to your credit card and the, uh, or rather going back to your airline miles, if they were suddenly redeemed, yes, you could redeem, redeem them for airfare. That might take a little bit more time. But oftentimes the easiest way to redeem those points is through gift cards. And so let's say I were to compromise your account, take out those 44,000 miles, redeem them for $400 worth of gift cards. Well, then as the fraudster, I mean, this is all digital, right? And so I could take those new gift cards then I could sell them online for a discount, or I could just use them and then buy a physical item, let's say, and then ship it to my house. And then I then would be able to use that based on the points that you provided. Kevin Lee is vice president of trust and safety at fraud management firm SIFT. We're talking about your loyalty points. A lot of us accumulate these points, mightn't 
keep track of them necessarily in, in a really diligent way. Maybe you check once in a while. Maybe the you know you've had that account for years. It's an email account you don't use anymore, so you just dip in every once in a while when you want to use them. And that of course opens the door for fraud because if people can get a hold of those uh, passwords and so on, it can take some time before you even notice they're gone. Um, Kevin, I suppose this leads to some pretty obvious questions about how you're supposed to uh, protect yourself. But but just maybe from the company's perspective, have they been working hard to protect? Because I know obviously banks are very aware of this. Uh, fraud has a huge cost on the financial system. Have they been working harder to protect these loyalty systems? Because in some ways, once the money is redeemed, it, it doesn't feel like the same financial cost as money simply being stolen from a bank account, for instance, or credit card fraud. That's right. And so typically, and it, it unfortunately runs the gamut here where Many businesses, of course, they want to protect themselves and their consumers against various forms of abuse, including someone accessing their account nefariously and then siphoning those points and rewards away. However, many businesses, unfortunately, are not able to protect themselves enough um, just because the digital landscape is changing so frequently. We talk about generative AI and different machine learning algorithms out there. And from a fraudster perspective, they have access to all those same tools that we do. And unfortunately, if they're deployed against the business, it, it can it can sometimes crack and therefore those credentials can spill out. That's not to say these businesses aren't doing anything because it, it is a cost to them from a, a brand and PR standpoint, certainly number one. Number two, us as consumers, if we were to have our account compromised, it is up to the business whether or not they want to make us whole. Oftentimes they, they will, but it is costing them money at the end of the day as well. And so it is in their best interest to protect themselves. So they are taking some, some courses there. But I think there are some things that consumers can do themselves to take fortune in their control a little bit more as well. What are those things? Because uh, you know, you see oftentimes nowadays you're offered sort of it's it's inconvenient, but you're offered more complex passwords, two-step verification for so uh, and so on. And I think sometimes people look at that for something as simple as say your points at the local drugstore, and you think, ah, why why bother? It's it's a pain. Next time I'm in there, it's a pain to redeem them. But ultimately, you, you should probably take advantage of all the protections offered to you. Oh, Ben, I mean, you don't like a 16-digit alphanumeric password that's completely unique? Absolutely not. Not, but you need to use them, right? Because in some, at some case, in some cases, I mean, that is that is your line of defense. It's amazing sometimes, and you pointed this out that we're far more protective of our of you know very basic things, and not so protective of this treasure trove that we have online. Yeah, and I'm, like all, all jokes aside, there. I mean, the it gets a little bananas, frankly, around like yes, I think many consumers know now that you should absolutely try to have a unique password. That is strong. It shouldn't be password one, two, three, four for these sensitive accounts. At the same time, it's very difficult for consumers to remember just how many passwords are needed. So I, as a consumer, looking at my phone, I have over 200 apps installed on my phone. And I'd say the majority of them have a login and a password option. Now, does that mean I I remember all 200 of my unique passwords? No. And that's really where things like a password manager can come in handy. And there's plenty of free password managers out there. There's some paid ones as well. And they can definitely be a great source to help a consumer have good password hygiene, use unique passwords, and it's still relatively easy to access. Um, and as phones get, I'd say, better at verification, often you might have face ID or fingerprint uh, touch in terms of verification. And so you really don't even have to remember the password. You can essentially have your biometric or your fingerprints or your face to help unlock or 
redeem some of these points. So there is some respite on the way with regards to having that unique password and using things like a password manager to make it easier for us. Right. And I suspect just paying closer attention to your loyalty programs and the points that you have there, if you value them, obviously, uh, would be important as well. Definitely. So there's that piece. And one thing I remind consumers is I'm not saying you should opt into the the marketing emails from a lot of these places, um, but you can definitely opt into account changes. So for example, if your password changes, if you suddenly redeem those 44,000 miles, likely you have the option to receive some sort of email confirmation that says, hey, Ben, thanks for using our service. You've redeemed your 44,000 miles for X number of gift cards. Enjoy. And so that's another way to stay on top of what's happening out there. Uh, to make sure that your points are actually being utilized by yourself. Right. I, I suppose once you get that notification, there is a possibility of nipping it in the bud at that point. Correct. And so that's that's when you can really contact the customer support of those organizations. And so they can claw back some of those points um, if that's an option. Number two, if you happen to be one of those one of those consumers that reuses the same password over and over again, that's a good hint to you to, to go to your other websites update your passwords there as well. Um, and one just consumer tip that I recommend using, uh, you can go to a website called haveibeenpwned.com. That's Pwned. P-W-N-E-D. Okay. Um, and from there, you can see where your email address or password may be part of these larger data breaches out there. So there's some pretty high profile ones, including unfortunately some airlines and some hotel chains that have had some large data breaches. And so from there, you can see if your personal identifiable information has been associated with some of those data breaches. Right. Well, Kevin, thanks for the reminders. Uh, Valuable information. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Are you a birder? I've never been a bird watcher. I like birds, obviously. Everyone does to some extent, but I'm not a bird watcher. I know some people have done it. And people get really obsessed with it. Good. I mean, it's a harmless hobby. In fact, it's probably a really good one. They're doing something now. I think they're doing that big national bird watch where it's sort of collective citizen science, essentially, where people go out and monitor birds in their areas and then report them back, I think, to uh, the university in the States. might be done through the Audubon Society. I'll have to look it up more. But you know, they say, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And my next... uh, guest certainly fits that bill pun intended by the way uh having become a passionate bird watcher all the way back in grade school noah stricker has become one of the world's most famous birders in 2015 and mostly because of this in 2015 he set out on what was a really a remarkable journey with a backpack and binoculars he covered 41 countries in just 12 months uh, in a quest to see as many of the world's estimated 10,000 bird species as possible And he became the first ever to see more than half of them. In fact, he did even better than that. He saw 6,042 to be exact. And he detailed the whole thing in a very successful book called Birding Without Borders, An Obsession, A Quest, and The Biggest Year. Here's how he describes that. I have just written a book about my big year called Birding Without Borders. It's a narrative story of traveling the world with birds as the currency. In 2015, I did a big year, which for a birder is where you try to see as many species of birds as humanly possible. By the end of the year, I ended up seeing 6,042 species of birds, about 60% of all the birds on Earth, which was good enough for a new world record. 
For me, birding is more like a lifestyle than a job. I suppose I would describe myself as a full-time bird nerd, but it's something I'm just fascinated by. I got into birds when I was about 11 years old, and I've been watching them ever since. I'm struck by their behaviors and their colors, not just by checking them off on a list, but by all the things that they do and how they are so universal. Well, there he is, Noah Stricker. I mean, after you've had a biggest year like that, a biggest year of big years, how do you top that? Well, you don't. Being the bird lover that he is, Stricker decided instead to focus on one bird in particular, part of a species he'd already been paying close attention to for years, a pursuit that sees him travel from his home in Eugene, Oregon, all the way to the least hospitable continent of them all, Antarctica. He can be a tough guy to track down at times, but he's back from his most recent trip there, and Noah Stricker, associate editor of Birding Magazine, author of Birding Without Borders, an obsession, a quest, and the biggest year in the world, and among penguins, a birdman in Antarctica, joins me now. Noah, thanks for your time tonight. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. This is, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people remember your year, your tour, your, your big tour, your one-year 6,000-plus species tour. I mean, I, I can't believe that it's almost a decade ago now that that all happened, maybe a decade ago at this point. I know. Tell me about it. Some days I wake up and I'm like, did I really go to 40 countries in one year and see 6,000 birds? That seems like some kind of crazy dream. (laughs) It was. What prompted it? I mean, have you been a birder since you were young? Oh, yeah. I I always blame my fifth grade teacher here in Eugene, Oregon, where I'm from. She put a bird feeder on our classroom window and she would stop class every time a new bird showed up and we would try to figure out what kind of bird it was. And I actually, I just had coffee with her yesterday. So I'm still in touch with her. She's 79 now. Her name's Judy, but uh, she got me going and it's a slippery slope of birding addiction ever since then. Tell me about that trip because you really did go to, you know, three dozen countries plus, plus, plus C6,000 species of birds. I gather it wasn't all sort of tour buses and, and like comfort. There was, there were some hairy moments in there. Oh, yeah. So for a birder, it's called a big year when you try to consciously see as many species as you can in one calendar year between January 1st and December 31st. And in 2015, I went for the world record. And at that point, no one had even seen half of all the birds in the world in a calendar year before. And uh, so that's what I set out to do. And it was the cool part about it was contacting local birders in all of these different places that I wanted to go and saying, hey, you know, I'm not an expert on the birds of Cameroon. (laughs) Can I (laughs) stay at your house and you want to go birding and show me around? And so it became this epic adventure of this sort of grassroots effort of birders all over the world supporting this quest. And in the end, that's now a few years later, that's what I remember the most is all the birders that I met along the way that year. Yeah, I suppose that part of it would actually be be more of the fun is meeting other people who share your passion and they get to show you their backyard because I'm in I'm on Vancouver Island and birders here are very, very proud of what's in their backyard. Oh, yeah. And that's the cool thing about birding is it doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, any of that. It's uh, wherever you live, birds are going to be right out in your backyard. So it's all about embracing what's around you and connecting to the environment that way. Tell me a bit about on that world tour, some of the, the highlights. I mean, I know it goes back a while now, and we'll talk about Antarctica because you've just been again. Uh, but what were some of the more memorable moments of that world tour? It's so hard to pick favorites, but I'd say some of the birds that stand out to me would be uh, the harpy eagle in South America. I got to see in Brazil this raptor that's like 
three feet tall. It's the biggest bird of prey in the Western Hemisphere, and it eats monkeys and small mammals in the forest and brings them back to its nest, which is like the size of a Volkswagen bus up in the top of a tree. And they're pretty endangered and they need a lot of room to roam. So that was a pretty cool one. I got to stake out a harpy eagle nest sort of near the Pantanal in Brazil. But there were others. I mean, in Eastern Australia, I got to see a bird called the cassowary, which if you've never heard of one, it sort of looks like a emu or an ostrich shaped bird, but it's got this wicked helmet on top of its head and this pink waddles of skin hanging off its neck it's like five and a half feet tall it looks like a dinosaur that was pretty epic and just all the hummingbirds in costa rica and the birds out on the serengeti in africa is uh again it's cool the the places that birds take you when you go out to look for them and um don't just see the regular tourist stuff but get you out into the real world Yeah. I mean, I traveled a lot for work over the years. And one thing I always found incredible being in a new place, and you don't even notice it until you stop to pay attention, is just the sounds of the birds are different. So you know you're somewhere different. Oh, tell me about it. Whenever I watch a Hollywood movie, I'm (laughs) listening to the birds in the soundtrack. And this is one of my great pet peeves in life is you watch a movie that's supposed to be set in wherever, Australia, and then you hear it in the background, the birds have been dubbed in by some, you know, sound editor who doesn't know the difference. And they're not from the right place or the right time of year. So Hollywood movie editors, please contact me and I will tell you what birds to put in your soundtracks. <laughs> yeah, I heard a story once here in Canada, um, the CBC, which is the public broadcaster here. I mean, their listenership is quite into birds. And they did some story on birds where someone did just that, subbed in something else. And it was spent, meant to be taking part in one part of Canada. And it was the bird was from another part of Canada. And they got flooded with calls. This is, a, I think this might be a myth, but they just, you know, people are very, very aware of this stuff. Don't use canned bird sounds if you're telling a story about birding. Oh, and there's a lot of people out there just like me who know what they're listening to. I mean, birding is getting pretty popular these days. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Your <laughs> totally. book inspired a lot of people, by the way, I think. I mean, I started reading about people sort of attempting smaller scale greatest years uh, here. It's kind of a cool idea to do a big year of birding. You can do it on any scale. You don't have to do the whole planet. You could do a big year in your own backyard and just keep track of how many birds you see. And it makes it into a game. And so it makes it fun. You know, you add a new bird and it's just it's fun that way. So you could do it in your local park. You could do it in your local city. You could do it in your county, state, province whole country if we're getting kind of crazy <laughs> yeah or you could do a big year of something completely different i remember there was this uh movie came out in 2011 called the big year with jack black owen wilson and Steve yes Martin i saw playing that. bird watchers it was actually based on a true story of three guys who had done a big year in north america uh, years ago and they asked those three guys in real life like if you were going to do a big year of something what would it be and i remember Jack Black said he would go to musical concerts for a whole year. Owen Wilson said he would go to sporting events for a whole year. And Steve Martin said he would try to track down all the works of art by a single artist in galleries around the world. Wow. <laughs> Those were great answers. It is. I mean, you're right. You could do a big year of just about anything. I suppose part of this, too, is you were shedding the, shedding light on the fact that the, a lot of these species are endangered. And that's unfortunate that, you know, a big year, you might be seeing things that are that mightn't be with us for as long as they should. It did feel a little bit like taking a snapshot perspective of the state of our planet, doing that much traveling in one year rather than like over the course of a whole lifetime. 
it was easy to get depressed in some places just by the scale of development and habitat loss and all these threats that birds are facing. But I was also actually kind of inspired by the end because at the same time, there's so many people who are getting interested in birds now. It was actually kind of heartening to see how many people really care about them now. So both things are happening. Noah Stricker is associate editor of Birding Magazine. His books include Birding Without Borders, An Obsession to Quest and the Biggest Year in the World. He saw more than 6,000 species of birds in one calendar year back in 2015. He's been spending a lot of time. After that, he decided to focus more on individual uh, species. And one of those is a species of penguin that he's been off to see in one of the truly one of the most remote, remote parts of the world uh, called Elephant Island in Antarctica, where Ernest Shackleton spent some time. You may remember that name. Uh, tell me a bit about the chinstrap penguin, because that's been a big thing that you've been paying attention to amongst other things of late noah yes so after i did this big year of bird watching around the world where the whole idea was to try to tick off as many species as possible in a relatively short amount of time i got to the end of that year and it was kind of like well what's next like (laughs) well how do you follow that up you know and my next idea was to spend a concerted amount of effort and time just studying one bird, because this is what I like about birds. It's not just that they're a list of species to be checked off, but each one of them is its own living, breathing creature. And I've always had a a soft spot for penguins. I've been going to Antarctica doing research and tourist expeditions since 2008. So for years and years now. And so an opportunity came up to do a master's degree thesis on the chinstrap penguin, and I grabbed it. So I ended up spending two years studying the chinstrap penguin and the Antarctic Peninsula region. Amazing. They are remarkable creatures. Uh, I, I, I was watching something about them drinking salt water, which I thought was, was amazing in of itself. But why the interest in them? And what did you find out? What have you found out? Well, the chinstrap penguin is an interesting one because we tend to think of penguins as being in Antarctica. But there's 18 different kinds of penguins in the world. And actually only two of them, the emperor and the Adelie, are restricted to Antarctica. The other 16 you can also find in other places. And the chinstrap is among those. So you find it on islands off the coast of Antarctica, even up to South America. But the chinstrap had not been studied very well, maybe for that reason. It doesn't really have the star attraction of those Antarctic penguins. Even though there's millions of chinstraps around, no one really even knew where they all were and how many colonies there were and how their population's doing. So that was essentially my project was to go to Antarctica, go to some of the most remote chinstrap penguin colonies that in some cases had never been visited by a biologist before in the wild, count up how many nests there were, put all the info together and just try to figure out how their population is doing. What was that like? I mean, it's hard to imagine. I've been to some remote places, but nothing nearly that remote. What's it like? It must be, I'm trying to imagine if it's really noisy or really quiet, or it's just a bunch of everything. Antarctica is a wild place. And even these sub-Antarctic islands that are off the coast, it's uh, fully exposed to the Southern Ocean, which doesn't have any land in the way all the way around the planet east to west. So the wind never stops blowing. The waves build up almost infinitely. So it's a region of really tempestuous weather. And you're from Oregon. And you're from Oregon, which Oregon has some tempestuous weather as well at times. Oh, yeah. And the the sailors that used to go down there, they would have to round Cape Horn below South America to get where they were going. And they had this saying that below, was it like 40 degrees 
it's just like the furious 40s and then below 50 degrees it's the screaming 50s and it just gets worse and worse the farther south you go because it gets windier and windier and to get to antarctica you generally go by ship and leave the southern tip of south america and head south across the drake passage and it takes about a day and a half to two days to make that crossing and then you get to this totally different continent that's pretty much completely covered by ice and glaciers with wildlife around the edges, including the penguins. And and these Chinsap penguins are, I mean, given that, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty hardy creatures, no, considering what they live in day in, day out. They are amazingly hardy. We think of penguins as being these sort of endearingly awkward creatures on land because they have these short little legs and they wobble back and forth and the more time I've spent with penguins, the more I think of them instead as super athletes. I mean, they spend most of their lives actually in the ocean. That's why they waddle and everything, because they're more adapted for swimming than being on solid ground. And even when they're on land, they're climbing cliffs that I would not be able to climb myself without special equipment. And they have these toenails and uh, padded skin on the bottom of their feet that makes their feet into little crampons they can climb up with. And they're jumping rocks that are half their own height. I mean, <laughs> they're pretty, they're pretty hardcore birds. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I guess at one point I told you I was at the London Zoo and this is far from Antarctica doing a story on penguins because it was the penguin health check that year and having someone explain to me why it is that they're, they're so well adapted for their climate, right? I mean, they are essentially built to survive where they are, not necessarily just in Antarctica, but you know, in and around that area where it's, you know, the weather could be pretty brutal. They, they do obviously do sacrifice some of their foot speed for, for swim speed and so on. Every nature documentary you ever watch about penguins on TV in, in Antarctica anyway, always has the same storyline about they're enduring the coldest elements known on planet Earth and their whole life is about survival. And it's just like this crazy existence they live. But I don't know. Again, the more time I spend with penguins in Antarctica, the more I'm like, they're having a great time. <laughs> Tell me about that, because they do look like they're having fun, I have to say. I mean, that's completely imposing human thoughts on, on an animal, <laughs> but they do look like they're having a good time or at least happy to be there. If I had a superpower, I think being able to read the thoughts of a penguin would be a pretty good one. <laughs> Maybe it would be kind of disappointing. Maybe they would just be thinking, you know, Fish, fish, krill, penguin, <laughs> swim. <laughs> I don't know if there's some deep philosophical thoughts going yeah. on in the brain of a penguin. Yeah, what's in but, that uh, They are very well adapted for where they live. <laughs> so what next, Noah? You've done so much. What What's next on your, on your list of things to do? Well, right now I'm just getting started working on a new book project that's going to be published by National Geographic in the coming years. It'll be a Birders Atlas of the World. So it'll be a large format book that's divided into sections of the earth ecologically. And each section will describe the cool birds you could find there and reasons to go there and lots of maps and photos and infographics and stuff like that. So that's going to be a pretty weighty project that's going to take me the next couple of years to write. Well, no, it sounds like a great one. Thank you so much. Uh, I much, much, your time is much appreciated. Oh, thanks again for having me. This is an interesting issue only because the person uh, who produced this report, who has a very 
big position in this country when it comes to this issue, found herself on the receiving end of it at one point this year, and it sort of created a bit of a firestorm. And uh, we'll talk about it. I mean, the issue of accessibility for Canadians with disabilities has certainly been in the spotlight over recent months, especially with several cases involving problems with airlines. Canadian airlines, of course, are subject to the accessible transportation for persons with disabilities regulations, uh, which says that airlines have to prioritize transporting mobility aids in cases where some luggage must be left behind. Now, according to the CBC, there was some details shared um, by the Canadian Transportation Agency that reveals in 2022-2023 that the authority received 197 complaints about accessibility on flights, including about 54 regarding mobility aids. So this has been an issue. For instance, this is Mayan Ziv, who took an Air Canada flight from Toronto to Israel, only to find that the airline had damaged her electric wheelchair in the journey. My wheelchair was just damaged. It's barely moving. It was a surprise and a complete shock. It's not enough. I want equity for all people with disabilities who travel because my story is not unique. It's not equal. And it's a horrible feeling. It certainly isn't unique. And one person who found that out happens to be, this was another incident that made headlines back in October, uh, when another airline, Air Canada in this case, left her wheelchair behind on a cross-country flight, uh, landing in Vancouver from Toronto without it. Stephanie Cadieux took airlines to task for failing to treat her wheelchair with respect. She posted about the incident on Twitter. Her post received overwhelming support. Well, it happens that the former BC MLA is also Canada's first chief accessibility officer, a role created under the 2019 Accessible Canada Act, which aims to create a barrier-free Canada by 2040. Um, last week, after 18 months in the role, Kedzier released her first report on progress being made under the Act. Uh, as chief accessibility officer, she is indeed responsible for monitoring and reporting on that progress and any emerging issues or challenges faced along the way. Um, and so I called Stephanie Kedzier's office to see if she'd like to talk about it. Of course, uh, she was nice enough to accept, and Canada's chief accessibility officer uh, is here now to talk about her first report. Stephanie, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Tell me a bit about the role, because this was a big milestone for, for the position to put out this first report. It is. So um, my role as Chief Accessibility Officer, Canada's first uh, Chief Accessibility Officer, uh, the role was created in the Accessible Canada Act, which passed in 2019, to, to monitor the progress that's being made under the Act. Uh, in it, I act as an independent advisor uh, to the minister responsible for the Act. Last week, we put out the first report, uh, first annual report, and sort of laying the laying the groundwork, setting the stage for, for reports to follow. You've been in this space for such a very long time now. Uh, what how, how has it been in this first little bit that you've been in this role? Because I know that part of this is just going out and, and getting a real lay of the land as far as what people are thinking about, uh, what some of the complexities around uh, sort of a, complying with the, with the act is are, uh, and some of those things. But what did you what have you heard in the in your first uh, months in the in this position? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm not new to the world. Um, I've had a disability for 33 years myself, um, and I've I've spent my adult career in and around advocacy for people with disabilities in one form or another, whether that be advocates in the disability community or or an advocate inside uh, political structures. It was an honor to take the job, and I did spend uh, the first first, well, over a year, um, just doing a lot of listening, uh, certainly to the community across the country of people with disabilities and agencies that serve them, but also from and with 
agencies within the federal government, um, individuals working for the federal government, all folks trying to pull in the same direction around inclusion for people with disabilities. Um, I learned a lot. Uh, I wouldn't say I learned a lot of things that were new to me. Some were, but more so it just solidified my understandings of, of where we are uh, and where we need to go. Reading through the report, um, you did highlight progress where, you know, whether it be private companies or government or so on, have been trying um, to make progress in this issue, in this, first of all, just awareness, period, and mm-hmm. then and then sort of remedying issues. But I did get the impression reading through it, and, and, and you know, the words are, you know, you, you, you could sort of read the subtext that you feel that maybe that things are progressing, but maybe not quite fast enough. Uh, I'm glad you got that out of the report. You know, as, a, as the title of the report says, accessibility is everybody's business. As more than a quarter of people in Canada live with one or more disabilities, and most of us will acquire one as we age, it's something that can't be ignored any longer. And accessibility is no longer optional. But it does start with a culture shift. Um, We have to recognize that people with disabilities aren't the problem, but in fact, the barriers are the problem. And what I am seeing and excited about is both here here at home in Canada, here in BC, and around the world. We are having these conversations at a much higher level, at a in a much more obvious and and concerted way um, than ever before, and that's really exciting. Um, it's exciting to me that the the concept of accessibility, inclusion, people with disabilities, and their rights is no longer a sort of a niche conversation, but rather it is a part of the discussion uh, for corporations, for governments, uh, and beyond. But we, and and I did want to highlight in this first report, some of the progress and some of the the positive steps that I see being taken. But we really are, as the report says, we're at a starting point and we have a long way to go if we're going to be barrier-free by 2040. It can't stop with the federal government and the federally regulated agencies. It has to include the provinces, the municipalities and the private sector. Um, So yes, there are some things I think that we need to take action on faster and and some things that are going to either uh, incentivize uh, or or encourage us to move faster or slow us down if we don't do them. You did highlight a couple of interesting, some interesting areas of progress. And I, I was, I was in, you know, pleasantly surprised to see that it appears like a lot of companies are taking this seriously now, that they're trying to figure out, sometimes it's just a question of not knowing what you don't know, you know, not knowing right. that that certain office setups don't work for certain people, that the certain that a way a theater is constructed mightn't work for certain people. It's, sort of, it's been a learning process, obviously. Mm-hmm. Accessibility is complex. You know, no two people are the same and the, and the things that the, the barriers that exist um, and and removal of those barriers can be complex in that what's best for one person with a disability might not be best for the next person with a disability. And that is challenging. It takes a lot of uh, a lot of thought, uh, a lot of time to ask questions, um, to really understand. And sometimes those conversations as well are a bit uncomfortable because we have to we have to uh, really get at our own unconscious biases and ableism. And that includes people with disabilities. They too can can have those mindsets. So it's it's important that we we do the take the time and recognize that we're taking steps, and all steps forward are good. And some steps we take, we find out afterwards, yeah, that didn't really work so well. 
But as long as we're learning and moving forward, that's a, po- that's a positive. We can't get there overnight and we have to be realistic about that. But action does have to be taken now and we can't wait for perfection uh, to stop the progress. Stephanie Cadieux is Canada's Chief Accessibility Officer, our first Chief Accessibility Officer, by the way. She's been in that role for more than a year now. Um, And her first report was out uh, last week on progress being made under the Accessible Canada Act. Uh, Stephanie, I didn't want to talk too, too much about air travel because it feels like one of those ones that the media focuses on a lot. And it seems to, but it always struck me as being a bit of a canary in the coal mine issue. And you had your own experience with Air Canada this year, um, uh, sort of leaving your your wheelchair behind as you were traveling. And I think even in the report, you mentioned you're going to be watching this one closely. So I get the idea that you too think that this is something that needs to be tackled because it is so very visible. It, it's true. Um, and and it is, as you say, a bit of a canary in the coal mine. It's not fair to focus on air travel as the only aspect of things that need where there needs to be change, because certainly that isn't true. Actually, transportation broadly is one of the areas where people with disabilities encounter the most barriers. And, and that's across all forms of travel, right down to transit and taxis. So it is certainly not unique to air travel, but there are some pressing issues as it relates to air travel that are really important and where the need for accessibility and what, what accessibility means and how complex it is really do come to a head. And, and certainly um, there is progress being made, slow progress, but I would say steady, and certainly, I would say that the the number of big, high-profile incidents in the last couple of years have helped to spur that action to be taken a little faster. Um, air travel is an area that is covered under the Accessible Canada Act. Airlines, like other federally regulated entities, have to create accessibility plans and, and look at their organizations and, and look at what the bar- where the barriers exist and put plans in place to remove them. Uh, their first plans are out. Uh, their progress reports are are out or underway. There's a there's a long way to go, but that is the first step. Yeah, I get the impression just reading through that part of it too, and the, some of the social media uh, posts. The one social media post that you put up when that incident with air with your air travel happened was that there is a time for for the for the, for the carrot, but unfortunately in your in your position there has also has to be time for a bit of a stick too, right? I mean, yeah. this this is this is serious stuff, and sometimes we don't want to couch too much of it in the language of conciliation and oh, it's okay, we'll figure this out. Sometimes you need right. to get out the stick. You do, and we do. And the reality is, uh, as I point out in my report, sort of more broadly around regulation, we've been waiting, the disability community has been waiting uh, for many, many years for people to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And that hasn't been enough. I say often my own rose-colored glasses, uh, when I was first injured, I hoped that with enough education, people would just figure it out and don't feel that they have now 33 years later and having been one of the policymakers and knowing how difficult even from inside it is to make that change it is now and uh and we have to take the action now and that means putting some more things into regulation into law uh so that so that we can enforce compliance Looking at, at one of the things I've been struck by, because we've interviewed people on the show over time, though, is just how many in the disability community, not all, have, have sort of taken to social media and, and sort of started to advocate for themselves, uh, whereby you see there is a lot more public pressure out there from people within the disability community to to not be silent about some of these issues, not, not necessarily to name and shame, but certainly to name and educate. 
Yeah, and I think that's important too. And you know, everybody has their own comfort level with disclosure of their disability and um, and being public, and and that's important. Uh, people need to have that autonomy. Sometimes having those stories told is really important. It was not the first time for me that that I'd had an issue with an airline. It was the first time that I felt it. I felt necessary to say something. You're and, not saying something. You're not saying something. Yeah. <laughs> And, and so that that's where the challenge exists. Social media does provide an opportunity for people who have maybe felt voiceless before to have an opportunity to share their voice. And, and again, those stories can help to illustrate, can help to educate. But it's also important that we don't rely on that in order to make the necessary changes. But instead, what the Accessible Canada Act is putting in place is a, is a structure to actually replace the need for individuals to fight for their own rights and instead to put it on put the onus on the organizations to proactively remove and prevent those barriers from existing altogether that's a big shift uh that's a it's a it's a big culture shift it's a big shift in in how we expect businesses to do business but it's the right one when you look at what success will look like in this role because clearly i'm sure the the urge is to try to make a huge difference in a short period of time. And knowing that you've been doing this for, for a long time now, you know that moving that mountain can be tough. What would success in this role look like for you uh, in, in, in a year, for instance? Oh, that is a hard question when I battle with all the time, because I am just as impatient as everybody else um, for this change to happen. But I just, I am very realistic about what is possible and how quickly things can and cannot happen. Um, there is a lot of learning that still has to happen. There's a lot of, there is a lot of that unconscious bias to root out and and overcome. But for me, progress is going to be if next year when I write my report, I am able to actually point to progress to a, the the dial being moved further from the point it is this year. When I've I've said I'm going to take, you know, I've got a small team and and limit I am one person, I am limited in in how much scope I can cover too. So I'm focusing this year a lot uh, on the employment pillar of the act. And the reason for that is that employment is one of the pieces that people with disabilities told government was most important to them. Why the ability to work, the ability to to contribute. I'm concerned. Uh, that we're not seeing the seeing the numbers shift enough there. And what are some of the barriers and why are we not seeing those those barriers removed? So if by the end of this year, I can point to uh, organizations that have have really dug in uh, and committed and and had some learnings and moved forward, that will be a positive thing. Stephanie, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for doing this. Classified. Luke Boyd is his real name. I was just reading, by the way, that the Governor General's Performing Arts Awards laureates include this year Maestro Fresh West, the first ever hip hop recipient. He's been dubbed the godfather of Canadian hip hop. And he's one of those, uh, one of the people he inspired was a teen living in Enfield, Nova Scotia, which is near the airport, about an hour outside of Halifax. Um, and he started in humble, obviously, like all many hip hop artists, uh, Luke Boyd's career started in pretty humble surroundings in the mid 1990s. In fact, he eventually, not long after that, actually, got to work with Maestro Fresh West, which was a big honor for him and part of the many 
kind of cool chapters in his career. Um, but he left his hometown of Enfield uh, to go to Halifax to pursue dreams of a career in hip hop. So flashback to his first release back in 1995 called Time's Up Kid or 1996's One Shot. And you'll see references to the tracks having been recorded in, in his own apartment or in other people's bedroom studios. I mean, this was the way, this was organic, right? This was sort of making it on your own, getting your tapes out there, playing live, getting a buzz about you and trying to climb the ladder and make a career out of this from Halifax. Um, but from the humble beginnings came some pretty big success. It took a while to build, uh, but less than a decade later, now in his late 20s, after eight albums already, his ninth, released in, released by Herbnet Records in 2003, became one of the biggest independent rap albums of the year in this country. And it launched him to some real new heights. Uh, between 2008 and 2017, he released five albums. There'd be a whole bunch of Juno nominations, much music video awards, East Coast Music Awards. He worked with prominent MCs in Canada, including Shaw Claire and Maestro Fresh West, who I just mentioned. He collaborated with Royce da 59 He opened for Ludacris, Snoop Dogg, Busta Rhymes, The Game. Nelly, Nas, the Black Eyed Peas, the list goes on and on and on. And, uh, you know, even in 2010, he, re he received Juno nominations for Rap Recording of the Year, Single of the Year, and Video of the Year. And in 2011, he was nominated again for a Juno for Single of the Year for a song called Oh Canada. He's also worked with Snoop Dogg, as I mentioned. So it's been an incredible journey over the last nearly 30 years now. But like in all careers, as you get older, you start to look at things a slightly different way. So where all his, many of his early records were about blazing a trail and the future and dreams and things he wanted to do and places he wanted to go. Now a lot of it's sort of about, about being a dad and being married and having three kids and looking back at the way things are now, the people that are, that are still with him, the people that are gone, the places he used to spend a lot of time, he doesn't spend much time anymore. All of it sort of wrapped up in a new single called All Wrong, which will play for you in a bit it's to be concluded in a new album that's out in april uh, but luke boyd classified joins me now from nova scotia uh, thanks so much for your time tonight good to be here man how are you good i was looking back 1996 you sort of cut your first thing it's an great liner notes that sort of say recorded at my house mixed in someone's bedroom right which is you know the, <laughs> the, the good old days but... the origin story of all hip-hop is that right Hell but yeah. uh, what's it like to what's it like to be back and this song's very speaking of you actually go back in the video and you show yeah. people a lot of these places that were referenced on that first album yeah well that's kind of the whole vibe of the song was kind of looking back at these moments that we i think most people go through in life and we don't realize how special they are until they're gone. And you kind of look back and go, oof, when was the last time I did hang out with those friends? Or when was the last time I did this? You don't know usually what that last time is. And that's kind of what these songs, what this song is about, is about appreciating those moments while we're going through them. Yeah. I guess one of the, the, the challenges, one of the beauties of being a recording artist, and one of the challenges of being a recording artist is you can actually track back through all those things. Every video, every song has credits to it, has people in it. I mean, that's essentially that's how you know, I, that's yeah. how why my time frame is from albums. Like if someone asked me, Hey, what were you doing this? I got to go to an album. Like, Oh yeah, that was that album in 2005. And okay. I can remember now, like albums are my timestamps. Yeah. 18 now, right? I mean, 18 and is this and coming up on 19, I guess, or is this 18? I forget. This would be, I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we count EPs and stuff like that anymore. I feel like I'm probably, you know, I, feel, I think this might be the 20th. Amazing. How did you get into it? Because I look back at 95. I was actually looking this up the other day. I was, we're, I'm a little <laughs> bit older than you are, but I was paying a lot of attention to hip hop in 93, 94, 95, 96, because it was such a golden era. It took real courage to be from Halifax and say, hey, I'm going to do that when you had like your your templates were a two-pack at the top of his game, a biggie at the top of his game, all kinds Snoop, of stuff coming from yeah, Snoop, yeah, all of it. Yeah, definitely. No, it was, uh, 
it was never something that I thought that's this would turn into my career by any means. Like it was just something that, you know, I was 15, me and a couple friends started having fun messing around. I think it felt like it kind of gave me, me my identity at school, you know, started playing at the school dances and everyone knew it was, oh, that's Lukey raps. You know, a lot of people made fun of it at first. You get through that, but it, it was just something that I kind of kept pushing through and, you know, not even come from Halifax. I remember moving from Enfield to Halifax, right. moving into the big city and meeting the rappers here and, you know, seeing a DJ scratch for the first time and all these other things. So there was a couple moments, you know, my first tour of Canada, my first tour of the world, like it kind of kept having those small moments that prepared me for the next one. So I guess I never got too scared off from it. It kind of kept me excited and, and, you know, being in my mid forties now, I, I still have fun. Like I'm going to the studio after this to make a beat. My boy's coming over, plays guitar. We're going to work on one of his songs. Like I still have fun with it. That's great. Yeah, I watched you do the yeah. uh, the beat for Wonder, and it still looks like the same process. You hear something you like, you think oh, that that would do so. That would make something nice. The same thing, man. Same thing. But obviously, you know, after doing it for twenty twenty five years, you learn new techniques, new things you can try. You know, so it's a little bit more. But it again, it comes back down to hearing something I like. I, I don't play instruments. You know, I can play keys a little bit, but usually just sample based hip hop is what I usually used to come up on hearing a little part of a record, taking it, throwing the sampler, cut it up and see what I can turn it into. Yeah. It's amazing. I think there's a song you made back in 2006. Maybe it was no mistakes where you talk about not liking your first four records at all. Like admittedly, yeah, it was, it was no them. mistakes. Yeah. It was no yeah, mistakes. Yeah. No, it's just, I, I never liked how my voice sounded. I never felt like the beats got right. I think it was trial and error, which was my album in 2003 was the first one where I felt like, okay, this, this actually feels like something I really would enjoy and like, but again, like, yeah, I never thought I was the greatest. I wasn't even the best rapper in my crew from Enfield. You know what I mean? Like, I was always that guy trying to catch up. But I think that's what kept my mind open and always trying to get better because I was always trying to get better. Yeah, you, you must have mean, with all the people you've worked with, period, all the people you've toured with over the years, I've always thought it must be really unfortunate, not unfortunate, but it must be really tough to have like your golden moment when you're about 18, 19 on your first or second album. Right. And all of a sudden then it goes away because you know, hip hop can be fickle that way. Um, and you never get a chance to, you never get a chance to do what you do, which is get better. I, I say that's one of the reasons why I think I've done this as long as I have is because I kept doing these little small steps. It wasn't 20 and I put out a record, sold a hundred thousand records and blew up and blah, blah, blah. Like that never happened until I was in my thirties and and it just kept climbing to to get to that point. But yeah, I've said that a lot of times. I'm kind of lucky that I came up through this game, learned a lot, learned a lot about the industry where I can work with other artists, help other artists from the East Coast. And it took me a, a longer process, but I gained that much more knowledge that let me stay here this much longer too, I think. Yeah, and, and when you look at, I was listening, again, I was mentioning, I was listening to your first album the other day, because as I say, you, you didn't like it much, but it is much better than you give it credit for, considering where it was made, how it was made, someone's bedroom, someone's, you know, that kind of stuff. It yeah. sounds great. And Four you kept track talking, days. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You, you, the first track is, it talks about the future. And listening to uh, mm. to All Wrong feels very much like looking back the other way, right? And it's, it's an interesting way of doing it. it it's interesting to yeah, hear. Yeah, like in those days, I'm rapping, yeah. I'm rapping what I think is going to happen in the future. Now I'm rapping a lot going hmm maybe i should have been looking at the past and appreciate those moments before i started looking towards the future <laughs> everyone makes that mistake though i mean that's, we all do that's that's yeah. why i write these songs i'm hoping some kid or some teenager will hear this and go oh let me appreciate these moments we don't listen to adults when we're that age you have kids now i mean you know you did a great yeah. that, that video for, for your song about your kids is fantastic by the way thank you man no it's kids are you know, a lot of people think I'm not home much because of my lifestyle, but I'm actually probably home more than any father. Like I only tour once every year or two. I'll do my festivals in the summer, but other than that, 
I'm home with the kids every day. I pick them all up from school. I take them to school. I have supper with them. So family's definitely a big thing for me. Yeah. What's that been like in terms of just the creative process for you when you, you know, I was thinking back to, to, you know, what, what, what songs you probably listened to that influenced you to take it up and what was big in like the early nineties, you know, naughty by nature it was all party music. Naughty right? by was, nature. Yeah, having fun, right? Having fun. And now it's, and now it's sort of, it's a bit wisdom now, right? That's interesting. hundred percent. And I think that it just comes with growth with age and, you know, the way you look at things, of course, I'll have, still have my party tracks, but a lot of motive is trying to share that knowledge, that wealth you've learned over the years and stuff I wish somebody might have told me in a song or something that I got out and we could have looked at things a little different. What's, what's the pressure like given, I mean, you know, I, I know for all artists, doesn't matter what, what kind of music you make, there are the ups and downs and there are the hits and the, and the follow periods. And, but mm-hmm. whenever I speak to any, anybody who's over 40, they tend to start looking at the business in a different way, right? They start, especially if they're okay financially, but they start looking at things with a little more, a little more reflection and a little less pressure. Yeah, no, that's where I'm at right now. Like, I don't want to say I've tried to retire, but, you know, last couple of albums, I thought, what else am I going to write about? You know, I, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. A lot of my friends aren't doing this. It's not the same, but it, it almost turned around to be a hobby again. Again, like when I was 16 or 17, when I'm in my 30s, it was like, OK, I'm at this. I got to make this work. I'm signed to a major. We're doing this. Now it's kind of like it's almost more of a hobby. And I make these records and then it becomes work when I'm like, OK, I want people to hear these records now. I want people to hear what these songs are. So that's when you go down, you put the start shooting video, shooting your social media content and all this stuff. But yeah, to be 100% honest, I, I don't have any pressure anymore. If this record fails, if I don't make another record, do another show financially, I, I planned myself out pretty well, did some real estate stuff. So it really is like. I'm retired and I just make rap music for fun now. Yeah. Which feel, is a good spot to be in. It is. And failure is all relative, right? Like it's all relative depending on what, uh, what's it like? I mean, you came up right at that time when everything was, tra- was the transition from labels controlling who heard what, when to mm. basically any artist being able to put their stuff out there and hoping it catches, right? Because it's, uh, you were right in the middle of that. What's that been like making that transition? Well, it was just so different. Like, positives and negatives on both sides like obviously the positive now is any joe blow can be in their house and on computer and have a full recording studio at the tip of their fingers and they can upload it and have it to the whole world could hear it within two hours you know like it's so easy to do that but the negative is there's a million other people that can do that too so what are you going to do to make that music stand out that much more and you know, to me, it always came back to live shows. Even now, when people ever ask advice, like, how do I make real fans? I'm like, go play live. Right. The internet's great. Use that for what you can. But this real life thing is where people are going to remember and you'll stand out compared to the other million people that put out a song on the internet. Classified, the Canadian rapper Luke Boyd is with us this half hour from uh, from near Halifax, Enfield, it's called. If mm. you've ever landed at Stanfield Airport, you've essentially been to Enfield. Not too far, but it was a big move into the city. And his new song called All Wrong really looks back. He actually takes, if you watch the video, because it's great, it takes takes viewers on a tour of all the places that he spent when he first moved from Enfield to Halifax to kind of pursue this dream of becoming a, a recording artist, essentially. And there's some really cool moments that were about bedroom studios and houses that he lived in. You know, obviously the Donaire has to come into that. Uh, Got to bring it in. <laughs> Got to bring it in. Got to bring it in. Tell me a bit about this record because it is, I mean, one thing that I think I've noticed over the past years, like growing up in the 80s and 90s, 
there was a lot of sort of social awareness hip hop. There was a ton of it. Um, yeah, some, yeah. some of it was great. Some of it wasn't as good, but a lot of it was meaningful. And there hasn't been much these days, considering all that's going on in America with divisions and, and polarizations, Canada too, inflation, it's tough to, everything's gotten hard. And yet the music sort of is more about having fun or whatever. I mean, it's not bad. It's, it's just, more, yeah, you can find, I, yeah. I, I do find there is some conscious stuff, but it doesn't get that limelight shine. Like say a tribe called quest used to get or a public enemy and, you know, those were the top groups at that time. And yeah, you're right. You don't see a lot of that conscious hip hop on the major stage or whatever you want to call it as much. And I don't know. And like you said, the world is more divided than ever. There's more than enough stuff to talk about. Like I have a couple songs on this new album, one called People, where it's yeah. basically saying, I don't care if you're white, black, religious, gay, straight. I'm sick of everybody right now. Like it was kind of a flip of me saying, I love everybody, which nobody wants to hear that. So I'm like, I'm sick of everybody. That's kind of the vibe. Yeah. Um, there's another one called Make It Make Sense, which talks a bit about politics. You know, what a lot of us went through during COVID. And, you know, it's just kind of me trying to understand what the hell's going on in this world and trying to see a positive side of some of these things that is a little bit harder to find. But I do find a lot of those people might be biting their tongue a little bit more because people are so offended now. Like, you can't have an opinion without... You know, if somebody doesn't agree with you, they, they automatically seem to hate you these days, which is a, a sad state for this world to live in. I wish more people could share their views, have conversations with other people who have the opposite views and share information where I do find like we're so stuck in our ways. We don't even want to hear any other information unless it goes with our narrative. You're right. I mean, t- yeah. t- Tupac wouldn't have made it for the, through those first three or four albums at this point in life, right? He just a lot of lot of '90s rappers might not have made it through, you know, for different reasons. But yeah, it's a different different day and age these days. Yeah, I was hearing that you, that you sort of you, you, a lot of us, I think, have had this struggle over the past little while. Maybe it has to do with being, you know, forty or fifty or and so on these days. Is uh, is is just you know lying up awake at night, anxious about stuff, you know, trying to sort things yeah. out. I guess the one good thing in your case is you actually have this vehicle to be able to do that for yourself. You've been doing this since you were a kid is, is you've been mm. putting it down. You've been making tracks and writing lyrics. Yeah, no, I think, you know, that, that is my output. That's my journal. That's my chance to kind of vent and let a lot of these pressures or things on my mind. Like you said, like I've, I've never had anxiety. I never worried about things. I never, I always woke up and was like, Oh, what are we doing today? What's the thing? Now I do wake up and go, what do I got to do? What's the negative side of things I got to get done before I can have fun today? I don't know if that comes with age. I don't know if that comes with a lockdown for two years. I, I don't know what that is, but it's one of those things that I kind of question now and go, you know, I never knew what anxiety was. My brother always had that. Now I can relate to what he, he's gone through for a lot of time. You, you work with your brother, right? I mean, you've, you've been uh, you've been working with your brother. And obviously, what do your kids think about what do your kids think about your music? I asked this of someone the other day and they're like, yeah, they don't like my music at all. Yeah, it's, I think any kid that once in a while, they'll appreciate it. if we go to a concert and we get to go backstage. Oh, they love that dad's classified. But right. most of the time, they're just that's dad. That's what dad does. Not a big deal. They, they don't let me Instagram them or put them on the Internet no more. They're kind of that age of like, no, right. dad, turn it <laughs> off, you know. <laughs> But they're, 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 they're cool. They appreciate my youngest still. I can tell like if I'm out and somebody asks for an autograph, she'll be grabbing my leg. Like, what are we doing, dad? And, but, you know, they, I don't think they think too much of it, honestly. That's cool. What, what, so yeah. what's up? Ne- what's up next? You got it. You have the album coming out near end of April and then, and then obviously the album tours this out. summer, got, uh, right? Some concerts. Yeah. I've got a bunch of festival dates already booked. Going to be booking some more of that. And then a big tour in October and November. Other than that, just building content to put out to promote songs you know what i mean like that's kind of the game right now is you put out songs and shoot this content for tiktok and all this other stuff and that is the side of it that feels like work to me but 
you know, I, I guess it gives me a purpose when I feel like I'm doing something and people are hitting me going, bro, you changed this. You know, I was going to do this and I didn't do it. And you feel like you're putting something positive out in the world. And I think that's a, a good thing to be chasing, especially in today's times. Yeah. So not retired yet and no shows with Martha Stewart just yet, right? You're not not yet. Not I'm yet. <laughs> well, listen, I really appreciate your time. Good luck with the uh, with the release of the album and we'll be looking for you this summer. Appreciate it, Ben. 